0: so we come and worship this holy god by giving attention to his word i trust you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning our scripture reading is to be found in the gospel of john john chapter 13 i'm breaking into the chapter at verse 31 and reading from verse 31 down into chapter 14 and verse 6. john 13 and verse 31. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, The rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. May the Lord be pleased to bless this portion of our word this morning. Let us pray together. Our Father, as we would come before you this day, We remember the words of your servant David and we would bring his words to you as our words this morning. A hymn of praise, praise, O God, from a pardoned people. Now Father, we come to make confession of our sin, joyfully acknowledging that you are a pardoning God. And we come off, Father, with the certainty of hope, because your love prevails. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Hear our prayer as we come in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The hearse began its grievous journey many thousands of years ago as a litter made from saplings. And then a litter, sled, a wagon, a Cadillac. The conveyance has changed but the corpse it carries is the same. Everything changes, you see, but death is changeless. We may seek to postpone it. We may seek to tame its violence, but death is still there waiting for us. Death always waits, the door of the hearse is never closed, death spares none. Those are the words of Joseph Bailey from his book from which I took my sermon title this morning, Death, the Last Thing We Talk About. We've been looking at the 23rd psalm, and the 23rd psalm is commonly referred to as the shepherd psalm because of its reference to the opening words. It's also known as the hymn of the martyrs, a theme that we explored in an earlier message, but it also bears the title of the funeral psalm. For if ever a scriptural reference is referred to or read at a funeral service, nine times out of 10, it is the 23rd Psalm that is read. So think again of those words that we were looking at last week. Those words of verse four of the 23rd Psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. How do we confront the certainty of this valley? How do we confront the reality of death itself? Because make no mistake, friends, it is appointed unto man once to die. And if you don't like the sound of that, then listen to this. 5 years ago, researchers at Harvard University completed a new study which showed that the expected mortality rate among humans is still 100% Price. <laughs> Given enough time, everyone dies. So death, the last topic in our conversation, the last thing we talk about. What does death mean? And as our text relates to God's sheep, the Lord's people, what does death mean? Mean to a believer? I wanted to look at it in three ways this morning with you. That is, what does net death mean for those who are left behind? Then, what does death mean for that believer who has died? And thirdly, what does death mean to the Lord who is our shepherd? What does death mean to those left behind? To those left behind, death means the emotion of grief. The emotion of grief. The words of John 14.1, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. The preceding chapters contain the news of Jesus' impending exodus. His departure. And that that news filled his followers with, with fear and with foreboding. Anxious thoughts. Troubled hearts. That word troubled is a very strong word. And it suggests agitation and distress. To the disciples... Something, something unthinkable was about to happen. Something they, they could not comprehend. A loved one was going to leave them. One in whom their hopes rested. One in whom their joy was derived. One in whom their faith was fixed. With the news of Jesus' departure, grief, was now the dominant emotion. A grief comes in many forms and it arises for many causes. Grief may show itself in anger, in denial, in bitterness, in resentment, in guilt, in emptiness, and it may be caused by a change in your workplace. It may come about if you lose your job. It's certainly something you have to deal with upon retirement, divorce, sickness, change of location, and of course, bereavement. Someone who has been a significant figure in our life is no longer. There, You sit at the kitchen table and their chair is empty. You go into your bedroom. Their clothes hang unmoved in the wardrobe. The bathroom, the toothbrush still sits there by the sink. The slippers beside the bed. And the Bible sits unopened on the bedside table. Grief. The emotion evidenced by our Lord himself at the death of Lazarus. John 11, 33 through 36. Jesus, the man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, Jesus wept and the Jews said, see how he loved him. Grief, we see it in the Savior and we read of it in the scriptures. When Jacob died and was gathered to his people, Joseph threw himself on his father's body and wept over him and kissed him. The Egyptians mourned for 70 days and Joseph carried the body to Canaan and seven more days were spent in, to quote, a very great and sorrowful lamentation. When Moses died, God himself Buried him, but the people of Israel wept for him for 30 days. You come over to the New Testament and we read of the death of Stephen in Acts 8 and what happened after he died. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Grief and mourning, part of life, even the life of a believer. You see it in the Savior, you see it in the Scriptures. We see grief also in the saints. Let me give you two examples. The saintly Robert Murray McShane. The death of his older brother at the age of 26 was such a, a, a blow it was almost too much for this, this godly servant of the Lord. Each year thereafter, the anniversary of his brother's death was especially remembered by him. The saintly McShane. What about the scholarly C.S. Lewis? The grief he experienced following the death of his wife for four years. I commend to you. His book, simply entitled A Grief Observed. Lewis's statement and journal of rediscovered faith in the face of death and isolation and grief. Jesus wept. He was moved and greatly troubled, because he saw what others failed to see that sin stood behind and caused that awful separation and grief. Jesus saw the the horror of sin, the awfulness of sin, the terrible effects of sin, because this, this is what sin does. It rips from your arms the one that you have loved so deeply. It causes this this terrible separation and this this gut-wrenching feeling of loneliness and almost inconsolable grief. My friends, sin sin creates havoc in the heart and in the home. And so we grieve because we're living in a, a fallen world plagued by sin and death. The words of Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. In this way death spread to all people. Because all sin. Depravity and death go together. And to those left behind. There is the emotion of grief, but to those left behind when it is the death of a believer, there is grief, real grief, but a grief tempered by grace, a hurt softened by hope. As Paul writes in First Thessalonians 4.13. We do grieve. But not like those who have no hope. And thus my second question is this. What does death mean. To those who die believing. We look at those who have left behind the emotion of grief. But to those who die, what does death mean? It means the completion of grace. The completion of grace. How did John Newton put it? Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will take me home. What happens when a believer dies? There is the grace of a full redemption. You see, my friends, here and now, we do not receive all the benefits and all the blessings Christ purchased for us on the cross. Here we still have to, to fight the sin that attracts And the sin that entangles. That despite our our, our personal and, and consistent devotions and disciplines. We all know we still feel so miserably. But as the shepherd leads us into and through the valley of the shadow of death. And we enter the father's house. This promise shines forth. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we discover no more sin, no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more, no more walking frames, no more walking sticks no more wheelchairs, no more crutches, no more glasses, no more hearing aids. I was almost about to say, no more false teeth. (laughs) The scripture says, behold, I make all things new. You see, through God's work of redemption, We are possessed by him. We are his sheep. You're not your own, says Paul. And he possesses us in order that we may be like him. The work of sanctification. And sanctification comes to its perfect fulfillment when we die. Because then... We shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. We shall be like him. The completion of our redemption. But then, of course, there is that joyful reunion. A reunion with all those believing loved ones who went ahead of us. That we we gain an unbreakable and unending reunion. For we will all be together with the Lord. That no more divisions, no more denominations, no more differences. And surely such a picture brings peace to the hearts of those left behind. That our loved one, is in a more glorious place. In a more grand place. They're not dead. They've never been so alive. They're in the presence of God. A full redemption. A joyful reunion. And thirdly by God's grace. Those who have gone before us experience a glorious reception. A glorious reception. I'm sure many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress. That wonderful work by John Bunyan. Let me read to you a portion of Christian's entrance into heaven. I read, Now while they were thus drawing towards the gate, behold, a company of the heavenly host came out to meet them, to whom it was said by the other two shining ones, These are the men that have loved our Lord when they were in the world, and that have left all for his holy name. And he has sent us to fetch them, and we have brought them thus far on their desired journey, that they may go in and look at their Redeemer, and look at their Redeemer in the face with joy. Then the heavenly host gave a great shout saying. Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. There came out also at this time to meet them. Several of the king's trumpeters clothed in white and shining ra- raiments. Who with melodious noises and loud made even the heavens to echo with their sound. These trumpeters saluted Christian and his fellow with 10,000 welcomes from the world. And this they did with shouting with the sound of trumpet. And this done, they compassed them round on every side. Some went before, some behind, and some on the right hand and some on the left. As it were to guard them through the upper regions. Continually sounding as they went with melodious noise in notes on high. So that the very sight was to them that could be it as if heaven itself. Came down to meet them. My friends, that's the reception the believer receives when they die. The good shepherd comes and gathers them up and brings them into the banqueting house and over them is the banner of love and heaven itself is filled with hallelujahs. Songs of praises fill the air, and the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. When a believer dies, there's no quiet little thing in heaven. Heaven bursts forth into praise. When a believer dies, Those left behind experience the emotion of grief. When a believer dies, they experience the completion of grace. And so thirdly, what does the death of a believer mean to the Lord himself? What does the death of the believer mean to God? It means the revelation of his glory. The revelation of glory. My favorite text, John 17:24. Father, I will that those you've given me will be with me, that they may behold my glory, the glory you gave me. Here is our Savior's desire, my fellow believer. His desire for you and for me. Because here was the, here was the joy that set before him. At the right of the Hebrew speaks of chapter 12. Here is heaven's will for its own. To look into the face of Jesus in all his glory. And be made like him and enjoy him for all eternity. What does the death of a saint mean to God? It means satisfaction. The satisfaction of the work of God's Son. You see, what do we read in Isaiah 53 verse 11? He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And what does that mean? Jesus saw both the anguish that awaited him at Calvary and the victory that his doing and dying would accomplish. Jesus saw the fruit that would come from his suffering, the redemption of the people the Father had entrusted to him. For redemption always has a relational component. Christ's suffering and death, my friends, was never, never in vain. It was never founded upon the hope that that someone, somewhere, sometime, would claim Him as a Savior. No, no, no. There was never a doubt for a moment as of the success of the Son's suffering, its efficacy, and its accomplishment. Because what was His name? His name is Jesus. And what does that mean? He shall, not maybe, not might be, He shall save His people from their sin. Most assuredly, most certainly. As we find satisfaction from a task well done, so the Son finds satisfaction. And the Father is satisfied with the work of the Son. The entrance into glory by another blood-bought child. Heaven is satisfied. When a believer dies, there's satisfaction. And when a believer dies in heaven, from the Lord's perspective, there is vindication. Vindication. The vindication of his word. That all the promises made, all the statements recorded, all the hopes declared, and all the images portrayed have all been perfectly fulfilled. God's promises to purchase and protect And preserve and present to himself with exceeding joy. Has come to fruition. It's come to pass. And the truth of God's word shall shine like jewels for all eternity. For whoever believes shall never perish. But have eternal life. And that will be the testimony of all heaven's citizens. And the, the like response of the Queen of Sheba to Solomon and all his glory. That when, beloved, we, when we get to heaven, when we get to glory, when we get to see the sun, when we are there. The words that will tumble from our lips will be these. The half has never been told. Here on earth, our minds cannot even comprehend the riches, the wonder, the abundance of what is in store in heaven for us. To God, the death of one of his people is satisfaction, vindication, and thirdly, it's celebration, Celebration, the celebration and proclamation and adoration of God's worth, the hallowing of his name. And how amazing that will be, for how vast will be the multitude worshipping at the throne. You get a glimpse of it, don't you, in Revelation chapter 5? I heard every creature in heaven on earth, under the earth, and on the sea, and everything in them saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Those from all the nations, red and yellow, black and white, all precious in his sight all-encompassing, for everything we do will be pleasing to him. Here we will be able to worship like we've never known worship before, all-absorbing, because the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. And so it was that the psalmist wrote, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Because the Lord will be the object of his people's praise. The manifestation and culmination of his people's pleasure. This is what the death of a believer means to our God. So death, the last thing we talk about. So let me conclude with a practical word, a pastoral word, and a personal word. My practical word to you this morning is this, plan for your funeral now. I kid you not. Write it down on paper. What kind of a service do you Want? Who do you want to take part? What hymns, what songs, what Bible readings do you want? You know, because frequently believers pass the earthly scene, and it's left to families who may be unbelieving to try and organize their funeral, and they haven't a clue about the Christian faith. So you put it down. When I was the pastor at Noble Park, we, we designed a little brochure in conjunction with a well-known funeral director's. Of stuff that you need to know and need to do. And we'd say, it was voluntary. If you'd like one of these, fill it out. You keep a copy. Give a copy to the office in the church. And we'll have all the information here. Take time, my friends. And if it's to be a memorial service, it would be a Thanksgiving service. Then please allow some time for grief. Because to mourn is not sinful. And tears are not a sign of unbelief. We grieve. So that's my practical point. Take this seriously and start working out together as couples or as an individual the funeral that you would like to have. Pastorally, preserve your hope that is meditate frequently on the promises of God And use God's word and fight to get faith to strengthen your heart as we all face death. And death does have its fears. Let's not kid ourselves. The the great fear has been dealt with by Christ. But, you know, to to all of us, I'm sure it's the the sense of the unknown, the, the unknown. So Christians are to be people who die well. Wasn't that Wesley? We die well. So think about God's mercy its depth. Meditate on his grace, which is so amazing, his love, which is so enduring and everlasting. And, and and feast often upon 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and John 14. And realize, my friends, that the Christian hope is founded upon facts. The death of Burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the Christian faith, unlike others, the Christian faith is not fairy tales. The Christian faith is rooted and grounded in fact. Our faith has foundations that can be examined and tested. It's a historical faith. So meditate on God's mighty acts to build up your faith be strong for that last day. And so personally prepare to die. Prepare to die. For unless the Lord returns we shall all die someday. So how do you and how will you you stand before a thrice holy god on that day and when you stand before him and he asks you this question why should i let you into my heaven how will you answer What will be your answer? If you are not a Christian this morning, I don't ask what sins you have committed. I know you've committed them. But I do ask if you have ever had a better offer than this. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the waters of life freely. Or to speak of the same truth in different terms. God says to you. Turn to me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none other beside me. And friends one final word from God. As I live declares the Lord God. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. So turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? What does the death of a believer mean to those left behind? The emotion of grief. What does the death of a believer mean to them? The completion of grace. What does the death of a believer mean to God? The revelation of glory. So, what will your death mean? The triumph of heaven? or the turmoil of hell, of gladness or sadness. So here again, the inescapable question that you will answer one day, why should I let you into my heaven? Oh, my friends, for heaven's sake, you think about that and prepare to meet your God. Let us pray. Oh, God, rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin in the grave. Plead with them earnestly. Plead with them gently. Jesus is merciful, and Jesus will save. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we as God's children will abound in hope. For his name's sake. Amen.